Matthew 28, we're going to begin a new series this morning, and just looking at the church. Uh, as we get started, as we think about the church, I want to just kind of tell a story. Uh, Jason and his wife lived in a neighborhood, and, and uh, one day Jason was out talking with his new neighbor, Sean, just alongside the driveway, doing the things that we do in, in our individual neighborhoods. Sean and his family had just moved in to the house next door uh, just the month before, and, and really as they stood out there and talked along the driveway, this is the third time that these two men had, had been able to interact and get into conversation. And so the first time that they had spoken was uh, right then, right after the movers had finished moving in, uh, Sean and his family stuff into the house, and, and Jason and his wife uh, quickly went over there that evening with an apple pie, and you know, nothing says, welcome to the neighborhood, we're glad you're here, quite like an apple pie. Amen? I mean, we love, and that's terrible. You guys don't like apple pie? I think that's glorious. Apple pie is like one of the best desserts you could ever have. Joanna, I'm glad you're shaking your head yes, because it's good. No one else is affirming me, but, I mean, apple pie. I want to move into a neighborhood just to get apple pie. <laughs> the second interaction that Jason had with Sean and his family was... Uh, uh, couple weeks before this third interaction and, and they you know they live next door to each other and the kids are playing in the backyard of Jason and his wife's house and so this kind of set there's an opportunity for these two couples these two families to get to know each other on a little bit more deeper uh, more intimate interaction there and, and so now it's this third interaction they're standing on this Saturday morning alongside the drive driveway and and Jason is looking for an opportunity to invite Sean and his family to church. And so standing there by the driveway, he just simply asked this question, would you like to join my family and I this Sunday as our guest at church? Sean thanked him for the invitation. He expressed how good it would be to connect with a local church. And, and so it happened right then. I mean, here's a, here's a neighbor reaching out to another neighbor in the name of Jesus Christ and for his mission. I, I hope that you've asked a question like that in recent weeks. If you've not asked a question like that of a neighbor or someone in the community, I hope my, one of my goals over the next two months is that you would be encouraged to have that type of conversation. Not just have the conversation of, of inviting someone to church, though I believe all of us should use that easy tool of just inviting someone to come to church with them, but taking it a step further, I want you to be a person, a follower of Jesus that will be willing to share the gospel with another person person. Um, we need to be inviting and we need to be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with us. But you think about that, the idea of inviting someone to church. Now, I understand that can be a scary thing. I understand that can maybe be an intimidating thing. But have you ever thought about what you're actually inviting, actually inviting that person to do when you say, would you like to be my guest at church this Sunday? What is church? Well, what are we doing at church? Who comprises or what comprises the church? There's all kinds of questions that go with that idea and that invitation that you're presenting when you invite someone to the church. We were to go next door, back behind in the admin building, and go to my library. I could show you shelves, uh, just upon shelves, of books about church. Books that tell us how churches should be formed, how churches should operate, how budget and churches should, op should, should be formed, and all kinds of different information, different ideas about church. There's all kinds of thoughts and ideas about church. Many of them are good, and I, hopefully most of the books on my shelves are good. 
There's a lot of ideas out there. They're not good. They're not biblical. And, and so, if anything, they're just merely a veneer of Christian spirituality layered over just secular humanistic thought. And so there's different and varying ideas of the church. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, relates the church to living stones, living stones that are stacked upon one another, and as they're stacked, they build a spiritual house or a temple. And, and so Peter would lead us to think about the church along those lines, that it is the house of God, and it has a structure. And so thinking about a structure, it makes sense that we need to be interested and informed and make sure the right structure is in place, because if it's not the right structure, the house implodes. So we got, need to, we got to, and we need to think about what is the church, how should it be made up, how should it be formed, and how should it operate. We go to the New Testament and we see uh, the most common word that's translated or speaks of the church in the New Testament, and that's the word ecclesia. Ecclesia is a compound word. It stems from two Two words or two forms of words. At first, it's formed from the preposition ek, which means out of, and then the verb kaleo, which means to call. And so, literally, ecclesia, the church is the called out ones. The Greek culture, ecclesia was used to speak of a body of citizens that were gathered as representatives to discuss the affairs of the state. We read through the New Testament and we see that this term speaks of the people who had been called out of the world, brought out of the world, and gathered by God into his family. We learn that God uses the church as a vehicle for displaying his glory. And that's what we see all throughout the pages of the New Testament is that God has redeemed sinful humanity, called them out of a foreign kingdom into his kingdom into his church made up of local churches and all of that for the display of his glory among the nations these now redeemed representatives gather sunday after sunday and live their lives out as members of christ church all for the glory of god before the world we also discover in the new testament that church has an exclusive message we don't gather with just random thoughts or random doctrine or random ideas. No, we have an exclusive message, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is the only institution that's been entrusted by God with the message of repentance of sin and forgiveness found in Jesus Christ alone. We also see that the church possesses a certain set of ordinances, that of baptism and the Lord's Supper that were established by the Lord. Therefore, no one should mis mistakenly see the church as anything other, think about this, than unique. We're not like any other organization. We're not like any other group. We're not like anything else in society. When we think about the church, we're not just a nonprofit organization. Yeah, we're a 501c3, but we're not just a nonprofit. Uh, we're not just a social club. We're not just some sort of, of, of Christian version of a company. No, we are unique in how we are formed, unique in how we are made up, unique in what we accomplish and what we do. Mark Dever said we ought to view the church as a corporate, organic structure made up of people that accurately magnify God's glory and faithfully communicate his gospel. I would concur with Mark Dever what he says there. We are a corporate, a body, collective body, organic in its structure, 
who accurately magnify the glory of God and faithfully communicate his gospel. Today we're beginning this new series uh, entitled In the Church. It's interesting, we found out this week that Parkway, our sister church in Chesterfield, uh, Pastor Derek um, Futural is starting the same thing. We're not calling our series the same title, but we're, he's doing nine weeks. I'm doing nine weeks, probably because July and August this year has nine Sundays. But we're doing nine messages. Here's what I think we're seeing in the local church today. There's a need. There's a consistent need always. But right now there's a need for us to make sure that we understand who the church is, what the church is, and what we're to do. And so I was chatting with Derek through text last week about this. And it was just encouraging to see that he and I and our churches are on similar paths right here in this local area. So our objective over the next nine weeks is simply to describe the structures that strengthen and enable the church to display the glory of God. That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to look at all those structures, all of those things that will strengthen us and enable us to display the glory of God within the world that we, with which we live. The structure, first structure we're going to look at is this this morning, the mission in the church. Mission. We hear that term a lot, right? You expect for me to say something about mission. You expect to hear that in small group. You expect to, to see that on our website because we use that word a lot in the church. But do we understand what mission is? Do we understand what mission means? Simple definition of mission is this. It's an important assignment carried out for political, religious, or commercial purposes. Another side definition could be this. It's a strongly felt aim ambition or a calling mission therefore is that strong sense of calling that would lead us to action so we we embrace this term right I don't know about you but I want to talk about mission in the church I want to know what our mission is and I want to move in that vein I want to accomplish that mission because there's something that I hold to there's a conviction that I hold to that leads me to want to be active in it and I believe you have the same sentiment so when we think about this, the church has a mission. Do we not have a mission? Amen? Church has a mission. I think we can agree that there's a mission in the church. Here's what Emil Bruner said, said about that. He says, the church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. So Emil Bruner is basically saying, absolutely, the church has a mission. We don't have a church if there's no Mission. So what is the mission of Christ's church? That's the question that we're going to be tackling this morning. Now before we define it, before we lay out what the mission is and, and give some description there, I think it's important for us to express what the mission of the church is not. What are those things that we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to fall into and begin to and act as if those are our missions? So here's some things that I don't believe are the mission of the church. First of all, the mission is not to expand a political party or an agenda. It's just it's simply not. We're not here to, to, to ride donkeys or to pull elephants. We're not here for any sort of particular philosophy or ideology. That is not our mission as a local church. The mission of the church is also not to secure any nation's borders. It's not to end world hunger. It's not to solve the nation's homelessness. It's not to manage the illegal immigrant crisis. The mission of the church is not to fix the drug epidemic. And all of these things we see in the news all of the time, and they are important issues. But those issues are not the mission of the church. 
mission is not to decry the social injustices in the world. The mission is not to eradicate abortion on demand. The mission is not to eliminate sexual abuse. The mission is not to make members feel comfortable. Hey, we want you to feel comfortable. This morning, I'm glad you're sitting in a seat that you're not uncomfortable. We used to have pews in here, and they were not the most comfortable things in the world. Had little padding because they were old, so they were deteriorating, and we got these things, and so you sit a little higher, you sit a little broader, it's much more comfortable. That's why some of you fall asleep on Sundays. I thought about calling some of you out. But I don't want to make a spectacle out of you. You're welcome. <laughs> I don't know who said that. Hey, the mission of the church is not to build bigger buildings. I want you to know the mission of the church is not to build bigger and better things. It's not to increase budgets, baptisms, and bottoms in the church. But listen, not all of those things that I mentioned are bad. Many of those things are good. Do we want to see more bottoms in this church? I don't actually want to see your bottom, but I want your bottom to be here. Just had to say it. Had to go there. Do we want to see a bigger budget? Yeah. Why, does that, why do we want to see it? Because it means we're able to do more ministry. We're, that means we got more people here. All of those things are good. Do we want to see the social injustices in our nation and in our world come down? Absolutely. The Bible would call us to those things. The Bible would advocate for us to do something in those areas. We believe that abortion is murder. So do we want to see an end to abortion? Absolutely. But when it comes to the mission of the church, the Bible doesn't tell us that those things are our mission. The mission is something different. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Those initiatives aren't bad. They are good, but they are not our mission. Mission, again, is the important assignment that stems from a sense of calling. Jesus knew his mission right? Jesus tells us what his mission is. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he says, the Son of Man has come to seek the lost, to seek and to save the lost. That was the mission of Jesus Christ. That was the reason for which he came. And so all throughout his life, all throughout his ministry, Jesus invested himself. Jesus called people to himself, and Jesus enabled them and, and, and mentored them so that they would then follow his example after he departed. Just before his ascension, back to the Father, Jesus called the church to himself, those believers that were in existence at that time, and he invited them to join him in this mission. You got your finger there to Matthew 28. Let's begin reading in verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Verses I read, that you read with me, hopefully and surely are not unfamiliar to you. We know these verses. We call this passage the Great Commission. It's called the Great Commission because Jesus here gives a very clear command and mission to the apostles and to the early church and subsequently given to us. So as such, he determined what was the priority of the church. Jesus could have made any one of the many other things that I mentioned earlier anything else. He could have talked about anything that, that's a challenge in this world in which we live, a, a concern for humanity. He could have made anything his mission for the church. But what did he say? You're to go and make disciples. 
baptizing them, teaching them all that I've commanded. That is to be your mission. That's your mission as a believer. That's your mission as a church. It's not just this one passage that we see in the New Testament that gives us this commission. In fact, there are five great commission passages in the New Testament. Matthew 28, what we read. We could go to Mark 16. We could go to Luke 24, John chapter 20, Acts chapter 1. All of these five passages are saying basically the same thing. Go on mission, baptize, teach, I am with you. So we exist as believers to bring glory to God by making disciples of our neighbors and the nations. That's how we articulate it here. We take the Great Commission text that we're looking at this morning in Matthew 28, and as a church, we articulate our mission saying, we exist to bring glory to God by making disciples of our neighbors and of the nations. Do you believe that? Is that the mission for your life? Is that the mission for our church? Or in your head, in your understanding of church, your understanding of Christianity, is there supposed to be another mission? Something else that trumps that? Something else that is more important? This morning, I want you to see from the Word of God that there is nothing more important, there's no greater mission for the church than to make disciples here and there. Three components of this mission I want you to see this morning. First of all, let's talk about the purpose. The purpose of our mission is God's glory. You want to know why we do what we do? You want to know why we're on mission the way we're on mission? It is not for our, uh, our ability to grow as a church. It's not for our, uh, our testimony in the community. No, our purpose is God's glory. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now the Apostle Paul, as he's writing these words, he's writing to a church in Colossae, and he's writing, arguing for the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is not a prophet, he's not a great teacher, he's not just a miracle worker, he's not a religious leader. Paul is arguing and saying, Jesus is God, and through him all things were created, not just through him, but for him. So he speaks of the deity of Christ, he speaks of the authority of Christ. We read through the creation accounts going all the way back to what it's referring to in Genesis chapter 1. And what we see there is not just God the Son was involved in creation, but obviously God the Father and God the Spirit. We also see evident there in creation was that he created humanity unlike and different from the rest of creation. Humanity was created in the image and in the likeness of God. And so there God in Eden placed the first man and the first woman so that they might perfectly reflect his glory. This was the purpose for which humanity was created, that Adam and Eve and their offspring, you and I, would perfectly reflect the image and the likeness of God, all to the renown of God, all to the glory of God. They were to glorify him by serving his, his regions over all creation. And so when you think about Adam, I want you to know this morning, Adam was not God, but Adam perfectly imaged God. On some level, it's difficult for us today, since we live on the wrong side of Eden, to grasp the biblical idea of God's glory. I don't know about you, but for years, even today, I don't fully grasp this idea of glory. 
But I struggle with, like, what does it mean? I know we say this word all the time, but what does it mean, the glory of God? I mean, I get, I get some of the pictures that we see in the Bible, the kind of glory, and it's bright, and it blinds you, and all those things. But what does it mean when we talk about the glory of God? I think that our humanity, our fallenness, inhibits that on some level. But in some ways, we, we are wondering, obviously, whether God is worthy of glory and praise. I think our fallenness leads us there. We want to step into that space. We want to step into that, that light where Jesus only is to be. So while the Bible contends that he is most worthy of glory, it also mostly assumes that we're just going to glorify him. You read through the Bible, and we don't see a lot of times this case being made that God is worthy of the glory. For instance, Psalm 29.2, let's look at that. Ascribe to the glory Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. It just assumes that God is worthy of glory. We don't have time to step in and spend a lot of time talking about the glory of God. But I do want you to see here that the Bible calls us to ascribe, to give to God the glory that is due his name. He is worthy of it. So we take Psalm 29.2, we take what we read in Colossians 1, we take the general teaching of Scripture, and what we see is, is that God is worthy of our glory. God is worthy of our praise. And we exist for those purposes. If you know your Bible then you know there's a major problem standing in the way of this call to glorify God. You see, we live on the backside of Eden. We live on the fallen side of Eden. So due to Adam's rebellion there in the garden, all of us have been born into this life in rebellion against God. Romans 5 lays that out very clearly. We carry Adam's nature, this Adamic nature. So that no one is righteous, no one is holy, no one seeks for God. None of us on our own have a desire to live up to the reason we were created. Remember, you were created by God and you were created for God. But we live in our fallenness for ourselves. I want my name to be in the headlines. I want my name to be talked about. I want myself to be prominent and in front of everybody. And even those who are like me, introverted, we still love the slaps on the back. Brother, you're so awesome. You're, you're the best thing since sliced bread. And we're grateful for sliced bread. Amen? We like the praise and the glory. And yet we were created so that God would be glorified as he is imaged through our lives. So in our fallenness, in our sinfulness... There's a desire to steal glory away from God. All of that is because of sin. Humanity is lost in sin. And yet, what do we see in the Bible? We see that, praise be to God, he is on mission to restore his image bearers so that they will bring him the glory that is due his great name. And it's for this reason that Jesus came. Remember, Jesus tells us his mission. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. God is worthy of glory. God is worthy of praise. And Jesus, God the Son, came so that you might be remade. The broken image of God in you might be remade. And this brings us to a second component of this mission. Our purpose is God's glory. The strategy, number two, is making disciples. Going back to Matthew chapter 28, we see here what Jesus says. Go therefore, he says, and make disciples, baptizing them teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. That's what we're to do. That's the strategy. We are making disciples 
in the church. And so the church, and by default, Christians are commanded by the Lord Jesus to go to others with the gospel. Don't miss that. Go and make disciples. Jesus is not commanding the early church, those apostles and those early believers and, and us today, to build big, huge, wonderful, attractional ministries so that people are drawn to. Now, in the 20th century, some of you are too young to even know what that was like, but back in the 20th century, maybe even up in the first decade of the 21st century, we had a focus here in America of we need to build it bigger and better and they will come. Right? It's kind of like that, that baseball movie from years ago. If we build it, they'll come. I say baseball movie because I can't remember the name of the title. It's Field of Dreams. I knew you guys would know it, right? I knew it had Kevin Costner in it. I knew it had people weirdly, strangely walking out of cornfields. But uh, that's the idea that we had in the 20th century. If we build something really wonderful and really big, everybody's going to come. And many cities and many towns across the nation, especially in the South, they did so. I would argue today that that was a terrible unbiblical approach to evangelism and church growth. Instead, we need to do what the Great Commission says. Go. Go and make disciples. Individually go. Churches go. We're to go and to make disciples. Jesus never commissioned the church to do something to draw people in. Instead, he commissioned the church to go to the lost and to make disciples. This is the great strategy. You see, we make disciples of Christ from the lost in the world. What is a disciple? A disciple is just simply a follower. A disciple is one who learns from a master, learns from a teacher, learns from someone who's been down the road a little bit longer and a little bit further than them, and they're walking in that same path. That is what a disciple is. And so we're to make disciples of others. The initial step in discipleship making is the preaching of the gospel. It's them believing on it for salvation. So when I say preaching of the gospel, I'm not necessarily or even specifically talking about what I'm doing. So when I say preaching, you probably relate that to, well, that Sunday morning, that's when the pastor's on the stage and he's preaching. I'm just meaning heralding. I'm talking about proclaiming. I'm talking about you sitting with another person over a cup of coffee in a coffee shop and you're sharing the gospel with them. I'm talking about you investing your spiritual life to your own children when you put them to bed at night and you read some verses of scripture and you spend time praying and you talk through the gospel. That's you preaching it to them. That's what we're to do. We're to go to where people are and invest our lives, invest our spiritual life in them. The second step is to teach them. Once they profess faith in Christ and they confess their sin and they uh, join their lives to the life of Jesus, now it's incumbent upon us as believers to make them a disciple. They've in the kingdom, they're in the family, but they don't know how to act like the family. A couple weeks ago on Father's Day, we had one of our families, during that parent-child dedication, They've adopted a young boy, and I talked about what is the beautiful picture of not only a parent uh, dedicating themselves to raise this child unto the Lord, but it's also a picture because this child has been adopted of what we've experienced as Christians. We've been adopted, grafted into the family of God. And so this was a little baby, so he's going to have a head start on how to fit into the family. But imagine a family today, and man, I wish there were more of them, but a family that would go and foster parent teenagers, maybe even out of that fostering, adopt those children into their home. There's a lot of baggage in that kid's life. 
probably bounced around foster home after foster home, and now they're coming to your home as a 15-year-old or an 18-year-old or whatever that age is, and they're expected to understand the dynamics of your home and what to do and what not to do. And so you should expect as a foster parent or as a new adoptive parent that that kid's going to make a lot of mistakes. That's what happens to us. We've been regenerated. We've been given new life in Jesus Christ, but we don't know how to operate in the church. We don't know how to live this life as a Christian. We need a parent. We need a believer to invest in us so that we as a new believer can grow into full maturity in Christ. So we're to teach them. Baptizing them speaks of the evangelism. Teaching them speaks of the ongoing discipleship in a person's life. And so when we see a person walking in discipleship, there's some things that we should be looking for. Traits that would speak of at least moving to maturity. Let me give you four traits of a disciple of Christ. Number one, a disciple of Christ follows God's word. That they're reading it and they're hiding it in their heart and they're living by it. They're walking in obedience to it. And so a disciple follows God's word. Secondly, a disciple loves others. A disciple is going to begin to take on the characteristics of the discipler. And if that disciple is walking with Jesus, then they're obviously going to look like Jesus. They're going to love others like Jesus loves them. And so that's a second characteristic, a second trait of a disciple. Thirdly, they serve others. So a person who's being discipled and growing in their relationship with the Lord and looking more and more like Jesus, what do they do? They serve other people. They have a servant's heart. They have a desire to invest their lives, to use their giftedness, use their talents, to use their treasures, all of those things that the Lord's given them for the sake of others. There's a fourth trait. A disciple of Christ shares the gospel with others. You see, all of us, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, all of us heard the gospel from someone. There might be that lone exception that somehow you're on a deserted island and a copy of God's word was dropped from the sky and you read it and you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps that is your story. But the rest of us heard the gospel from somebody. You were in church, you were in Sunday school, you were at church camp, uh, Christian family down the road, like Jason is invested in Sean, invested in your family. You heard the gospel brought to Christ through that. We all had somebody. Maybe even you were watching TV and you saw some, like someone like uh, Billy Graham preaching the gospel, or you're listening to the radio and you heard something preaching on the, on the news or, or on the radio, and, and you came to faith in Jesus Christ. The point is, someone got the gospel to you. And if you are to be a discipler who's making disciples, you will in turn get the gospel to others. How can you baptize them if you have not first shared the gospel with them? So, if we're going to make disciples, we have to go to the lost where they are and share the gospel. Then we have to teach them the word of God now that they've responded in faith. And so for us to carry out this strategy of glorifying God, there are two perspectives that I believe we need to grasp and adopt into our lives and into our church. Here's the first thing. We need to see the church as an embassy. We need to see the church as an embassy. We're going to make the disciples. We need to see that we are an embassy right here where we are in Powhatan County and the greater Richmond metro area. When you think about an embassy, an embassy is a sovereign outpost of one nation in another nation. So the ground upon which an embassy sets is beyond the rule, it's beyond the authority of the surrounding nation. 
So while it may reside in another country, even in an enemy territory, it reflects the sovereignty, it reflects the authority, and it reflects the culture of its homeland. It's an embassy, an outpost, far away from the motherland, but reflecting everything that there is back home in the motherland. That's what the church is. We are an embassy for Christ. As a local church, we must see ourselves as Christ's embassy, residing in enemy territory. While the people around us are not our enemy, they're slaves to the one who is our enemy. Don't miss that. We're an embassy for Christ, but, and we're residing in enemy territory, but the ones that we are living amongst, they're not the enemy. They're just simply adherents to our enemy. So we want our embassy to reflect the goodness and the glory of a greater king. We want the culture of our king to influence those that are in the foreign, enemy, foreign territory in which we live. Is this not why the church exists today? Is this not why we're here? Is, is this not our purpose? Is this not part of our strategy? I love what William Temple said. He says, the church is the only society in the world which exists for the benefit of those outside of its membership. There's a statement right there that ought to bring a little bit of sting to our lives. Why are we existing today? Why do we do what we do? Is it for us or for them? It's both. It's both. But primarily, man, we want to reach, right? Jesus says the Son of Man came, came to seek and to save the lost. We want to reach the world for Jesus Christ while ministering to those and making disciples of those that the Lord has given to us. So it's not just about making us feel comfortable or wonderful. It's about <clears throat> leveraging resources and leveraging talent and leveraging people to make disciples of those in which we live around. There's a second perspective, and that is to see the believer as an ambassador. Just as embassies are sovereign outposts of one nation and another nation, ambassadors are sovereign representatives of one nation in another nation. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He says, therefore, and he's already talked through the gospel, right? He's already talked about the ministry of reconciliation there in the early parts of, uh, of chapter 5. Now he's going to move into how this is to relate to you as a believer and you as a local church. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Does that not sound exactly what we're talking about this morning? That our purpose is God's glory, our strategy is making disciples. How do we do that? Collectively as a church, we understand ourselves as an embassy, a light set on a hill. And I've told you before, I think one of the sovereign, glorious things that God's done for our church is we are setting on one of the highest, if not the highest places in the whole county, Tower Hill. So literally, Red Lane, where we meet. Now, Red Lane is not the building, it's not the campus, it's not the acreage. We're Red Lane. But when we gather together, we gather at the highest place. What a beautiful word picture of what we're to be. A city set on a hill. A light to those who are around us. And individually seeing ourselves as ambassadors of an embassy representing the king in a foreign land. Paul here clearly articulates the gospel, and then calls us to entrust it to those who need to hear it. Ambassadors share the good news of the king. Embassies teach the good ways of the king. This is our strategy for making disciples. There's a third component this morning. 
quickly. The goal. The goal is neighbors and nations. Jesus says, of all nations. Go make disciples when or aware of all nations. Now, the Greek term here, you've heard this before, I'm sure, is ethne, when it speaks of nations. The idea that it's conveying is people groups rather than geopolitical boundaries. And so Jesus is not saying, go and make disciples of all the, the, the Ukrainians and the Russians and the Chinese and, and all of those things. He's not saying that with, from the standpoint of geopolitical boundaries. He's saying that from the perspective of people groups. Every single people group will be represented around the throne of heaven one day. And we're to go and reach those people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we were to go and look at the Great Commission there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we would see a call to spread the gospel through our concentric circles of influence. So the impression it gives us is to go to lost people with the gospel here and there, neighbors and nations. As a church, we believe God has sovereignly and strategically placed each of us within our own circles of influence. We've talked about this often, that God has placed you purposely, sovereignly, right where you are. You see, your neighborhood that you live in, the house that you bought or the house that you rent, you didn't get it because you got a good deal. Hopefully you got a good deal, but that wasn't the real reason. God in his sovereignty has placed you there. You might have been a lost person in need of the gospel, and God placed you in that place. And then because you lived there, through a set of circumstances, God placed in your life others who won you to Christ and discipled you. But you didn't get there by chance. We believe this stuff? Do we believe that we're just kind of a free spirit floating by random chance in this world? Or do we understand that there is a sovereign God who's on mission for each and every one of us and the rest of those who have yet to be reached, and he's moving and using us? Remember, what did Paul say? We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So God puts you in your neighborhood so that you can have relationships with people that live on your street that would never just darken the doors of Red Lane Baptist Church, but they'll listen to you as you invite them over for a Fourth of July cookout. Or you're invited by them by a Fourth of July cookout and you heard the gospel. You built a relationship. Remember Jason and Sean? Remember how he's leveraging his relationship or this opportunity that he has to, to build a relationship and he wants to leverage it for kingdom purposes? So today we live in the neighborhood because God put us there. Today we, we, we work at the place that you work because God put you there. And it's not just to give you a paycheck as good as that is. It's so that you can have an influence in other people's lives. Your children are not just going through certain social activities and recreational things to make you spend lots of money, which you do. That's a joke, by the way. I guess the rest of you aren't parents and you don't understand the burden that is upon your life. But as a teenage father or a father who has a teenager, I understand that. I'm not a teenage father. I'm way past that. I don't have hair, right? Um, when you're sitting at the gymnastics building and you're watching your child tumble around, your daughter or whatever, tumble around, are you just playing on your phone or are you trying to talk with people and leverage relationships? I don't go inside that building. I stand outside as much as I can, but I often get in conversations with people in the community. It's a great opportunity to get to know them and leverage that for kingdom purposes. As a church, we believe that God sovereignly places us in these situations as circles of influence. We also believe as a church that God calls us to take the gospel not just to our community, but to the nations. 
to our nation, to our state, and around the globe. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 tells us that we're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we're to take the gospel to our Jerusalem, our Palatine. We're to take the gospel to Judea, our Virginia, to Samaria. We can see that as our nation, America. We can see the ends of the earth as obviously the nations of this world. That's why we as a church partner, <clears throat> or excuse me, have partnerships in places like South Asia, Puerto Rico. We're sending 17 people to Puerto Rico next month. We have another team going in October to South Asia. We do that because God has called us to the nations and to the neighbors. We also believe as a church that God will and does raise up families and individuals and sends them out permanently, not just on short-term trips with our partners, but he sends them vocationally to plant a church here in Virginia or to go with a church planter. Man, what a glorious thing. I can't wait for the day of the next five years or so where we actually, as a church, start another church right here in Powhatan where we send a church planter and 50 of you get up and go with them. You know what will happen? The best 50 will go. And I'll be, and Trevor and whoever else and our elder board will be sitting there thinking, God, well, God, I could have told you about 30 other people not to, or that you should have sent and left the 50 good ones for us because those are the 50 that do everything. They're the 50 that give everything. But that's what happens. But you know what's going to happen? That church will go and they'll start and it'll flourish and people will be reached with the gospel and disciple and God will replenish and grow us even that much more. We'll do that here in Powhatan. We'll do that in our state. We'll do that in our nation. I'm praying that God would continue to raise up families in our own congregation that he puts to the nations like he did with the Dorners and, and, and the Haney's and others. All for God's glory. This is our mission. Mission is that strong sense of calling that leads us to action. You see, when Jason and his wife saw that the house next door had sold, they began to think about and pray about how to engage the new family that would be moving in. They wanted to represent heaven to these new neighbors and allow the Lord to use them to draw this family closer to himself. So they viewed themselves not just as another family living in a neighborhood with other families, but as a strategically placed family for kingdom purposes. Jesus had transformed their lives, and they wanted Jesus to transform the new family just like them. They wanted them to experience his grace. And so Jason and his wife embraced this role as ambassadors for Christ. You see, they were members of a church that believed that they were an embassy right there in their community, representing the Lord Jesus in a foreign land. And for this reason, this Christian family worked to develop a genuine relationship of friendship. Here's what we never should do is look at people as projects, but have genuine friendships with people through which, look, a bridge, a bridge of friendship over which the gospel can travel. If people know that they're just a pet project for us, they're going to be put off. But if they see that you genuinely care about them and you genuinely love them, and you're genuinely there to serve them, man, that friendship is a bridge the gospel can travel over. That's what we're to do. That's our mission. That's what we're here to accomplish every single day. This morning, as we contemplate this role and the functions and the structure of the local church, I want us to see first what the mission is. Because if we don't have the mission right, I don't think the next eight things that we're going to look at will be right either. 
So church, Red Lane exists to bring glory to God by making disciples of our neighbors and the nations. How are you engaging and how are you living that out in your life? Stand with me if you would. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and a member of our church, the things that we've talked about this morning should be stirring something up within you. I hope, I pray that you're saying, Lord, man, I am, I am doing well in this area. Help me to do more. But if you feel the sting from that, I hope you aren't resistant to it, but you embrace it. You'll lean into it and say, Lord, I'm not where I need to be, and I'm not doing what I should be doing. Help me in this area. Put some brothers and sisters around me to do better. Perhaps this morning you're standing here and you're in this room and you're not to be on mission because you are the mission. You're the mission that God's after. And you're not here this morning just like the rest of us on accident. God in his sovereignty and his goodness and his grace has put you in a place that you can hear the gospel. Here's what the gospel is. You're a sinner on your way to a devil's hell, justly so. But God so loved the world that he gave his son died on the cross in your place, take the payment and the punishment of your sin upon himself so that you could be forgiven, so that you, if you would faith into him, could be forgiven and given eternal life. That's the mission that God is on for your life. So this morning, we're going to pray in just a moment. This is a response time. If you are the mission and God is drawing you to himself this morning, I'm going to encourage you to come. Walking this aisle does not give you forgiveness of sins, but it's a good demonstration of you saying, I, I want to talk more about that. This morning, if you are a believer and God is speaking your life in whatever way, this place is open. Let's just pray. Let's be open to respond in faith. And whatever God is calling us to do this morning, let's respond. Amen? Amen. Father, this morning, we bless you. We thank you. We thank you. You're a God who's gracious and good. And God, we testify this morning that the only reason we can stand here as Christians is because we were the mission and you were on mission for us. Help us now, Lord, to live on mission as an embassy, as a church, as an ambassador, as a follower of Jesus Christ, where we live, work, and play, all for the glory of God. God, I pray for those in this room, maybe they're watching us online this morning, that need to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Give them faith and boldness to step away from their sin and step toward Jesus this morning. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.